we will this morning be looking at verses 15 through 20. And if you were here with us last week, you got to hear Scott preach to us the beginning part of this chapter. Um, and as you would know, as we have gone throughout the book of Matthew, we've, we've highlighted it a few times that the book of Matthew is kind of divided between both the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, where we have narratives that have his, his works, his miracles, and then we have a few sections that just concentrate on his words, his teaching, ministry. And so this morning, or and actually last week, we began what is the fourth uh, you would call it discourse, teaching section, major teaching section of the book of Matthew. And so uh, what we have this morning is, is our second uh, sermon in this discourse, but it is uh, also, as I studied this week, I, I noticed something that I really never ever seen before, and that is just how, how much the, this chapter, this whole discourse is unified and linked Together, And in fact, one of the things that helped me to see that is if you, if you go to the book of Luke in chapter 17, in chapter 17 of Luke, Luke actually kind of summarizes either a similar teaching moment of Jesus or this particular instance of his teaching, and he summarizes what we hear, have here in Matthew in 35 verses, and Luke uses four verses. And so... Um, this morning, we're going to look at a passage that's actually often used rightly to talk about the, uh, the practice of church discipline, and it is a good source text for that. And in fact, if you, if you want to think about just the, the church discipline, I, I encourage you, I actually preached last summer on July 31st, specifically on church discipline from this passage. Um, if you want to see that, go to the, the sermon part on our website. Gospel-shaped life is the heading, and it's July 31st. But this morning, we're not just going to focus on church discipline because this, this, what we have today, is so crucially linked to the rest of chapter 18 that we have to look at it in its context. And so this morning, I just want us to think about chapter 18 as a whole. Chapter 18 is specifically dealing with with Jesus teaching his people how they are to live and interact with each other in his kingdom. Last week, Scott helped us to see that how we interact with each other has to begin with our relationship with the Father and what that looks like. This week, we're going to see how he explains to his disciples how we are to live broken and in a broken world as members of one family. And next week, we're going to see how Jesus teaches his disciples that we are to interact with one another with a spirit of forgiveness. And so this morning, as we uh, look at this text, uh, let us remember that it is, uh, it is part of this big unit about how Jesus is teaching his disciples, how they are to live, and how he is preparing them to live once he is gone, once he has ascended, and how they are to interact with one another uh, while they wait for him to call them home. And so if you would, uh, I don't think there's anything special about standing, but I think it just kind of helps us to realize what we are going to read is important. It is the words of God. So if you would, would you please stand 
in honor of God's word. Beginning Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you inspired the authors across many, many hundreds and even thousands of years to put down what your Holy Spirit put within them. Father, we thank you that we have your words this morning. And as we come before your word, would you humble our hearts to learn from you, to be convicted about who we are, who you are, sin, the gospel, and truth. Father, would you give us ears to hear? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at the text this morning, I, I believe this text is, is going to answer for us this question. When Jesus ascends to heaven, how are the disciples, and, and by extension us, how are we to live together as imperfect saints, as imperfect saved people until Christ returns or calls us home? Let me say that again. When Jesus ascends to heaven, how are the disciples, and by extension, we, us, to live as imperfect saints until Christ returns or calls us home? And I think that this text is going to answer that for us in three ways. First, the church, we are to be a family, an imperfect family, but a family. Second, we as a church cannot ignore sin And finally, we as the church need our Heavenly Father. But first, our church, the church, is an imperfect family. Look again at the beginning of our text, verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Now, Jesus has already established back in chapter 12 that when he talks about his kingdom... When he talks about those who are following him, he speaks about them in the language of kinship, in the language of family. In fact, in chapter 12, Mary and some of the rest of his family are trying to get to Jesus to talk to him. And how does he respond to those who are telling them this? He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
In fact, frequently throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is going in his instruction to his disciples about their interaction between each other is going to use this kinship, this family language. And so before we even get any further in the text, we need to ask ourselves, are we in the family? Am I in the family? Jesus has already set for us the criteria way back at the beginning of the chapter that Scott covered with us last week. Remember, the disciples come to Jesus and they're, they're arguing amongst themselves. They're, they're trying to figure out who's the greatest. And Jesus says, you guys are asking the wrong question. Unless you turn and become like children, not only are you not going to be the greatest, you're not even getting in. And we learned last week that that, that doesn't mean that we have to get smaller it doesn't even mean that we are innocent like children. If anyone's been around a child for five minutes, you know they're not innocent. Even as we think about their humility that it's talking about, we're not talking about their character of humility. Children are not in character humble. No, the way they are humble is that they are humbly dependent on another. In fact, we as Dependent children need to actually act like my daughter Ellie whenever we go into a house that has a big dog in it. All right? When we go, she's actually better now, but whenever we used to go into a house with a big dog, she would think wrongly, but she would think that she was in mortal peril. She would think that she was five seconds away from being gobbled up. And so when she thought that, she would not run directly to the dog and try and beat the dog over the head herself to get rid of it, nor would she try and get on the highest piece of furniture herself to get away from the dog. No, what would she do? She would run to Kim with her arms up and say, Mommy. Because she knew that the absolutely only thing that would save her in that instance was being in the arms of someone who cared and loved for her and who would keep her safe. My question to us this morning, are we trusting in the Father's provision for us to be a part of his family. Friend, some of you in this room this morning are not trusting in Jesus, and here is what you need to do. You need to remember that God's provision for you to be a part of his kingdom is the gospel. And that gospel is this. God is completely good and completely perfect. He is holy and perfect in every way, and he created you and I to be in a relationship with him. And yet you and I, man, creatures made in God's own image, have looked at God, who is the just and perfect and infinitely good ruler, and we've said, no thanks, God. I'll be my own God. I'll be my own ruler. I don't need you. And friend, that is the ultimate treason against an infinitely good and holy God who loves you and who knows what is best for you. And friend, this treason comes at the ultimate price. It comes at the price of, of suffering and living in a broken world here and now, but even further than that, it comes at the eternal and infinite price of eternal separation and suffering under the just wrath against our sin forever in a place called hell. 
Because rejecting the infinite good of God requires infinite justice. That's the bad news. But there is good news. There is hope. Because though you and I have an eternity's worth of debt for our treason, Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the one who is teaching his disciples in this very moment, is the one who knew no sin yet became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the one who submitted himself to the Father's will, to humiliation to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the even better news is that though he, was, he died, he paid the punishment for our sin and was buried and in a tomb, just like the song that we have all heard, like we just sang a minute ago, Christ is risen. And also another song that we absolutely love here, and bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. Jesus truly rose from the grave. And friend, when someone walks out of the grave, you have to respond to it. And the only acceptable response is trusting in Him and Him alone to save you from your sin. It is throwing up your arms in your own mortal peril and saying, I cannot save myself. Save me, Lord Jesus. Friend, the burden of trying to be righteous enough in our own strength and our own power is far too big for you and I to carry. Instead, we must come to Jesus, the one who says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, if you are not trusting in Jesus, trust in him this morning. Put your faith in him. But know this, when Jesus saves us, it is not like when a firefighter saves you from a burning building where he pulls you out, he puts you out where it's safe, and then he says, have a nice life and moves on. No, it is not like that. When you are saved by Christ, you are saved into a relationship with the Heavenly Father, into being adopted as His child. But even more, well, not more than that. That's the most important thing. But in addition to that, you are saved into the family, the kingdom, into a church, into the church as a whole through all, all time. But also, I would beg you to be saved and to be a part of a local church. Like we are here. Brothers, sisters, we are saved as individuals, but we are not saved to be individuals. We are to be saved into a family. And if you want to see that in Scripture, just look throughout the whole New Testament. See how many times it's a little hard for us to see when it's translated into English, but nearly every time any of the New Testament writers say you, it'd actually be better to translate it y'all. Because he's talking to the church. He's talking to everybody. He's rarely talking through the writers to individuals. He's talking to the church. If you need to see it even more, sit, look at the very first days of the church in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Read that and tell me how much of that they could do all by themselves. They can't. We are saved to be a part of a family. 
And so as Jesus tells us to call each other brother, back in our text, the question for us is this. Here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, do we consider ourselves brothers and sisters? I hope we do. But maybe even more uncomfortably than that. If someone were to come in from outside and were to follow you or I around for a week, would they say, you know, you treat those people that you get together with every Sunday like family? Or for the rest of us, if somebody followed an individual in this church around for a couple of weeks, would, would that person say of us that we treat that person like family? Father, help us to treat each other as Jesus commands us to, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family, but we are not a perfect family. We are an imperfect family. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Jesus is preparing his disciples to live in his kingdom in the here and now. After he is no longer with them, he has ascended into heaven. And he is telling his disciples here, you are going to be a family, but you are not going to be a perfect family. The church then and the church now, we have the ability, like a family, to love and cherish and help each other, but we also have the ability now, until we see Jesus in glory, to hurt each other, to sin against one another. And Jesus is preparing his disciples. This is how you interact with each other, even when you are imperfect and you hurt one another. And church, we just need to acknowledge here today, Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, my family whom I love, we can hurt each other. We dress up real nice on Sunday, but we are broken people. And we need to know that and we need this passage so that we can know how to love each other even in the midst of our brokenness. And so we are a family, but we are a family that cannot ignore sin. Kids who are in the room, I want you to, to think about brothers and sisters that you have. Now, 99.9% .9 of the parenting and guidance that your brother or sister gets should be from your parents. But there's like one or two instances where you need to help out. There's probably more than that, but there's at least one or two. We tell Jackson, you need to let us do the parenting. In fact, we have to tell him that a bit. But... We have told them, and he has done this before, if you see your sister about to do something that's going to cause herself great harm, you step in. Kids, that's what you need to do. You talk to your parents first, but I, I guarantee they're going to say that's what you need to do for your brother and sister. Church, that is what we are to do for each other. And that is what Jesus is preparing us to do. If, if we see a brother or sister who is doing something that is going to cause themselves hurt or is going to cause hurt to the church as a whole, we need to, in love, step out to them and say, stop, don't do it. We need to step in and help them to see what is the right and good way to go. 
The command of Jesus is this, go and tell him his fault. That go, and in fact, that through each step of what uh, Jesus is saying here, it is not a suggestion, it is a command. If someone has sinned against you, you are, by the command of Jesus, to go and talk to them about it. But notice how we are to talk to each other about it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Brothers and sisters, we and me, myself, need to hear this this morning. It is not fun to get sinned against. It hurts. It is difficult. And it can be confusing. But if our first step, number one, isn't prayer, then we're in trouble. But if our second step isn't to go to the person who has offended us, if our second step is to go to our other friend and to say, can you believe what this person did to me? Then not only does that person need to be confronted, but now you need to be confronted as well. And I need to be confronted because I know I've done it before. We are to follow the commands of Jesus and we are to, we have to be humble, we have to be in prayer. Remember Jesus said, don't, don't you dare take the speck out of your brother's eye until you've taken the plank out of your own eye. It needs to be bathed in prayer and it needs to be done with such humility before the Father. But when our brother or sister sins against us, when it is time to talk to them, it should be between us and them. When Jesus tells his disciples that they have to address the problem, they must do it. And we need, to, we need to step back for just a minute and see why we are commanded to address this problem. We are to address this problem. Look at the end of verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I think there are two reasons why we have to address the sin of our brother and sister. The first, the first reason is to protect and to promote the goal of unity within the church. If your brother listens to you, you have gained your brother. Disunity in the church is a terrible thing. Paul has to deal with it with the church in Corinth at the beginning of 1 Corinthians they're all disunified. They're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And then the, the really holy ones are saying, well, I follow Christ. And Paul says to them, did I get crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? No. No, Christ is in all. We are all children of his. We are all saved by him alone. We need to be unified in that. In that fact that we have all been saved. We are all redeemed children of the Father because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We need to do this. We need to confront our brother or sister in their sin because we want to protect the unity of the church and we want to see our brother or sister restored. We want to see our brother and sister repent of their sin. But the other reason that we need 
to confront them is because of the seriousness of unrepentant sin. And if we need a reminder of what that looks like, well, we just need to go back up and look at verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. We need to realize that unrepentant sin is dangerous. It is deadly. Now we need to remember this. Scott reminded us this last week. We need to remember that the Bible is clear that for those who are truly saved, they will be saved. But the truth of the matter is, is that faith that saves is also faith that endures. And so we need to realize that when we look at warnings like this, the warnings that come for the believer, the one who is truly saved, they're going to hear the warning, and it may take some steps, but they're going to listen to it. But even though we, we hear that, we need to realize that, that unrepentant sin is dangerous, but it is also a cancer to the believer. And just think of, think of the Old Testament. Think of, think of Samson in Judges 13 through 16. Somehow, someway, Hebrews looks back, and in, and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, says that, that Samson is in the hall of faith. But if we look, he is in the hall of faith by grace because he sinned over and over and over again. And where did it leave him? In chains, weak, blind, made a mockery of. Sin is a cancer to a believer and it can destroy your life. So brother or sister, when someone comes and confronts you in your sin, listen. Listen and repent. But again, the scarier thing is it, it may be a sign that you need to think really clearly about whether you are a believer or not. And I don't, I don't like to say that, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that there are times when some of us can look a whole lot like we're believers, and yet by our attitudes we can show that we are not. Think of Sapphira in Acts chapter 2. Or not chapter 2, it's later in Acts. But she was there, she looked like she was a part of the people of God, and yet when given an opportunity to repent, she did not. And she suffered death immediately for that. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to hear that we must repent of our sin. And we must also realize that God, as He is working and He is using our brothers and sisters in Christ to, to help us to become more Christ-like, that sometimes our sin dies hard and sometimes it will take more than just going to your brother or sister alone, or it may take for you more than one person coming and talking to you. It may take two or three others coming. And in fact, we need to, we need to look at that verse 
uh, specifically. But if he does not listen, verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that last part is actually a, a quote and it should be pointing us back to the book of Deuteronomy because let's be honest, even as we are redeemed people, we've said we're an imperfect family. We're imperfect in that we sin against one another. We could also be imperfect in the fact that we think we've been offended, but really it hasn't been sinful. That is what in Deuteronomy it was, it was supposed to be. It was for, to be a protection for the person who was accused of sin and yet was not a sinner or was not. They were accused of something like murder and yet they were not a murderer. It was there to protect them, both to establish guilt and protect from false accusation. And so take one or two along with you. But even further, sometimes sin takes even more. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, first of all, we need to realize that when we love our brothers and sisters so much and we want to see them restored, we want to see them repent of sin, that sometimes that love may go to the point where it says, we have, to, we have to separate. We have to be willing to take away this family relationship for a time in order for you to see the depth of your unrepentance and your sin. But, but hear me when I say that. And when we, when we talk, when, specifically when we think about the fact that it's Jesus saying that you need to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, that doesn't mean that we just give them completely up. No, the person who is saying this, think about how he treated Gentiles and tax collectors. He loved them. He loved them and he was in their lives and he was consistently telling both them, the disciples, the Pharisees, and everyone he came into contact with, repent and believe in the gospel. Be forgiven of your sins. So brother or sister, I hope that we never have to do this with anyone, but even if we do, even if we have to love them to the point of saying that you're you're not showing us any evidence that you're a believer, that we would still love them and share the gospel with them and want to see them come to, to be restored. Church, do we love our brothers and sisters this much? I know this is not fun to think about. But do we love them enough to lovingly and prayerfully address sin? Do we love them enough to even remove from them the privileges of being a part of our family to show them the seriousness of their sin? If that sounds difficult and messy and too big for you and I to do, well, then we would all be right. That's why the text doesn't end there, but it goes on. The church needs the Father. Very quickly, look with me at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
This ought to sound familiar to us because this is exactly what what Jesus told Peter a a few chapters ago. But now he is saying it not just to Peter, but to all the disciples and to the church. And what he's telling his disciples here is that they are the stewards of heavenly authority. And here's what we need to remember, church, that as we, if we are dealing with a brother or sister who has sinned against us, even as we have to work through this painful and difficult and messy process, we need to realize that we are doing it on heavenly authority, not our own authority. In fact, if we're doing it on our own authority, we're going to be in big trouble. But we do it with heavenly authority. And again, see the manner in which we need to be exercising this heavenly authority. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. We need to be careful not to take that that out of context. We can look at that verse and and start to think if we take it out of context that God is some sort of wish-fulfilling genie and all it takes is two people to rub the lamp instead of one. That is not what he's talking about. It is in the context of how we deal with each other, how we love each other, even in the midst of our own imperfections. And so, brothers and sisters, as we have to wrestle with the messiness of sin in our lives, know that even when it's us as an individual, we need to be praying about it. But especially as we are dealing with these things together, it must be bathed in prayer. If we try and go through the messy situation of us sinning against each other without prayer, we, that will cause division. That will lead to the destruction of unity in the church. We must be completely and wholly dependent on our Father as we deal with the messiness of life together. But lastly, we need to remember this. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, let's, let's not take this out of context. We know 100% that for those who have called upon the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who are trusting in Him, He puts His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, within us. So we always have the Holy Spirit with us. But in this context, when we are talking about dealing with each other's mess and sin and loving each other through that, as we are coming humbly to each situation with prayer, Jesus promises His presence with us. And that should be both a comfort and a warning. It should be a comfort because it is, like I've said, I've repeated way too many times, this can be messy. This can be difficult. We are broken people and trying to help each other through our brokenness is too big of a task for us. But Jesus promises to be with us as we do that. But it is also a warning. Because church, we can get things wrong. And we ought to be really, really careful because Jesus who died for those who we are trying to help is there with us. 
And we need to be awfully careful because Scott reminded us last week about those who put a stumbling block in front of one of the little ones. We ought to be careful. We ought to be encouraged that the presence of Christ is with us as we seek to help spur one another on to love and good works, as we seek to lay aside every sin and weight which clings so closely. But we ought to do it soberly with the knowledge that as we do that, the one who died for our brothers and sisters is with us and watching over us. Brothers and sisters, this has been difficult. But we need to know that as we live here, in this time, in between the two comings of Christ, even as we are His church, even as we are wholly redeemed before God, we are justified in His sight. We have to live with the fact that we are still sinners. And Jesus shows us that we are to do that because we are to love each other as a family, an imperfect family, but we are to love each other as family. We are not to ignore each other's sin, but as we do all of those things, we desperately need the Father. And so I would encourage you, we are about to sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And what I can't think of a better song to sing when we think about how difficult it is to be in each other's lives and to help each other through this. We can't do it on our own. We can't save ourselves on our own. We can't save our brothers and sisters. Yet not us, but through Christ in us. Let's pray together.